0: to Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, it's page 853 on a Blue Pew Bible. If you do not have one, want to follow along with us there. And, uh, you know, today is a big day primarily because it is Easter, but it's also a big day here at Grace Church uh, because this is the final week of our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. So, if you're visiting with us, you're going to hear the passage I'm going to read in a few minutes, and, and, and you'll probably think uh, there's no surprise here. It's a resurrection passage in one of the Gospels. I could have predicted that one. Uh, but for our members, uh, we've been walking through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, over the past 16 months, where every word in it has been read aloud from this pulpit over the course of 51 sermons. And uh, I feel like I should say our sermon series are not all that long. Um, I actually have the rest of the year, 2019, mapped out. I think we have uh, five more sermon series just in this year alone, the longest which will be 12 weeks. So this was unique, uh, but this was a long haul. And um, one that I've said a few times from up here, but this book has shaped me personally in ways I could not have imagined in the way only God's Word can. And, you know, I feel like just Easter, I just want to say it. I want to say this as often as I can, especially on Easter. Man, if this book is uh, viewed by you or viewed by somebody that it's kind of just boring and it's old-fashioned and it's always kind of been there, but there's no real interest in it, doesn't capture my attention, uh, I will say with all love and with all due respect, you must have never really read it. Or at least read it, approaching it as... God's word or studied it with others because it is as alive as our savior is when we celebrate today and and what I find in the word of God is that it reads me more than I read it and there's no other book that can do that it is more relevant to today than any other book if you go New York Times bestsellers list in 2019 there's probably some great books on there you should probably read them but um those books will all for the most part be forgotten within a generation let alone 2,000 years from now. But I can tell you, 2,000 years from now, if the Lord has not returned yet, there will be people gathering and we'll be opening this book. And so each week at Grace Church, we open it, we read it, we explain it, we apply it. And every single week, it is a feast. And so we are in chapter 16, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 8. And so I do need to explain something before we start. Um, if you look down in your Bibles or you see it in your phone, um, most of them probably have a bracketed statement in between verses 8 and 9. And and they probably say um, something along the lines of what the ESV says, the the Bible that I preach from, uh, that, quote, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. And then those verses are kind of double bracketed. I think you have NIV, they might be italicized. And the reason is that the overwhelming majority of biblical scholars believe that those verses, 9 through 20, were added at some point later after the original work, and that the earliest manuscripts do not contain these verses, and the early church fathers do not ever comment on it or seem to know that they exist. And so what's happened is as history has gone on over the last 2,000 years, older and older manuscripts have continued to be discovered. Uh, The Bible is the most verifiable, historically accurate document in the world. And the earliest ones do not contain these verses. And so uh, I feel like I do need to explain, just as a matter of clarity, it's not a matter of heresy. Okay, there's nothing in those verses that contradict anything else in the Bible. It's not a matter of doctrine changes based on whether we include them or we don't include them. Um, it's not like, okay, Jesus is, is the Son of God in verses 9 through 20. If we take him out, he's no longer the Son of God. Uh, that's not the case here. But stylistically, thematically, if you want to read them after, you'll notice they're much different and then the rest of the gospel, especially if you've been with us this whole series. Um, and that's a little less obvious in English than it is in the original Greek, that the whole literary structure is different. And so the widely held stance is that they're not part of the original work. And so that's a little bit of a disclaimer, weird for Easter Sunday, but I feel like I have to say it. Um, because without them, as I think we'll see, that Mark's ending is very fitting to his style of brevity that has been throughout his entire gospel, especially compared to the other accounts. So with that out of the way, let's read the final passage in the gospel of Mark. Follow along with me. We're going to be Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salami brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. of this ending in the gospel of Mark is, I think, very intentional because it does something that none of the other gospels will do as powerfully, and what it does is it forces a response to those who are reading it. Again, those who have been here throughout this whole series, this is very Mark-like. He is brief. He's abbreviated. He doesn't give a lot of details. He doesn't give this kind of running commentary. He, he talks a little, but he says a lot, in the past, I've always read um, Mark's account of the resurrection, and to be perfectly honest, I'd be like, you know what, that's kind of lame. Like, that's not the very happy ending we always want it to be, especially, come on, it's Easter, I want to feel good. They fled in fear, the end, really. That's how we're going to end this whole thing. It's like a Holy Spirit-inspired cliffhanger, like, what are we doing here? Um, but reading it and studying it again After going through this gospel for so long, I now believe it is the most compelling ending of all four gospels. Because he challenges the reader in ways the others don't. He kind of stares you down. What are you going to do? Faith or fear? Take courage or take cover? You decide. But do not think or be fooled into thinking that a non-decision is an option. It's just not. It's one or the other. And so we're going to focus most of our time on this kind of brief but powerful word that the young man at the tomb speaks to the women. But we kind of, as we've done this whole series, we just kind of need to set the scene and set things up first. And so um, Jesus died on Friday at 3 p.m., Uh, Darkness covered the land. Um, By the time around sunset, he is buried. And then the next day, which is Saturday, is the Sabbath. And so there's no work to be done uh, throughout the Israel nation on the Sabbath. It is a day of rest. Surely for all of Jesus' followers, it was a Sabbath unlike any other spiritual darkness. I mean, can you imagine the confusion in the in-between A lot of blank stares to one another, a lot of looking up to the sky and just asking the question, why? It's a question we all ask in our life, why? Why is this happening? Why is this not happening? And then it's sunrise on Sunday, and then we have this trio, Mary, Mary, and Salome. And they're on their way to the tomb, and Mark is communicating something in the way he portrays this event. Um, Because we talked about this a couple weeks ago, he never mentioned these three women throughout the whole gospel narrative. And now he's named them three times in eight lines, at the most critical part of the story. And in the first century context, the shock is not just that these three eyewitnesses are new, but they are women. Women, at this point in history, first century Rome... Were not even allowed to testify in court you know why because they it would be deemed unreliable that women were thought they could not be trusted they were deemed overly emotional and hysterical and so before you bum rush the pulpit on me okay i'm just reporting the news This was the Roman Empire in the first century. And so most of you, if you've been to Easter services year after year after year, you know this. Um, But the, the fact that all four Gospels spotlight the fact that it was women were the only primary eyewitnesses in and of itself prove that the resurrection happened. Because if you think about this with me, if you were going to try to just make something up. Make something up, spark a movement, make up this whole resurrection and just kind of see where it leads. If you are making up a story, having women at the empty tomb would be a terrible idea to make it happen. Because the way people viewed women's testimony in the first century, I think if it's kind of a loose illustration, it's how we would view a young child giving a testimony, and we, we, we kind of hear what they're saying. We're like, I'm not sure that's reliable. Okay, so let me just consider this. Maybe this illustration won't work. Maybe it won't. Um, let's say Rochelle and I, we wanted to go viral. You know, church ministry was good, but we're trying to do something else. And we want to scam people by, think, by telling people that a UFO landed in our yard last night. And we just think, you know what, there's enough crazy UFO chasers out there. We think we can make this happen. If we could just get people to believe, we could probably write a book about it. History Channel will do a documentary on us. We're set for life. And so if, as our story, to get people to believe it, we we, kind of get the word out and maybe some local reporters come to our house and and we stick to this story that our four-year-old and our two-and-a-half-year-old daughter were the ones who saw it. And they told us, UFO, aliens, people getting abducted, all there happened in our backyard. Four-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old told us. Who is believing that? Like, you would tell me, like, if you're really trying to, that's a terrible idea. Like, you have to do better. You have to find credible eyewitnesses if you're just trying to make this happen. And so, therefore, the fact that all four Gospels report that it was three women who were there at the empty tomb, that must be the case. You know why? Why? because that's what happened, because it's true, that God in his providence raised up and chose women to be the ones who were there to witness the empty tomb, and it's the single most important event in the Christian faith. But that's not all. Again, Mark didn't just introduce them at the site of the resurrection. Again, this is the third time in eight lines he kind of weaved them into a story. Uh, first, at the crucifixion, chapter 15, verse 40, the three of them were there looking on. Second, at the burial, verse 44, Mary and Mary, again, watching, they're there, and now this. Again, if you were um, writing a novel, and you got to the very end of the novel, big 400-page thriller, and you get to the very end, and all of a sudden you introduce new characters into the final scene, your publisher would probably say, not a good idea. Just not really a good idea. Three people, we've never seen them, never heard their names, and all of a sudden, they were there at the climax of the story. Like, you'd kind of read that, and you'd go back to the middle and go, did I miss something here? Did I I skip a chapter in the middle? Who is this? What is happening? Um, But do you see what Mark is communicating? All these things are historical events. Jesus was crucified. History does not debate that. Jesus was buried. History does not debate that. And now... Jesus was raised from the dead. History debates that. But Mark is saying these three things, all the same eyewitnesses. This is not a story that started rooted in history and then takes on this kind of myth, like myth, mythical, symbolic meaning. Like Jesus was kind of resurrected in our minds, in our hearts, and it can kind of shape the way we live. No, that's not what happened. He was physically raised from the dead. And the way he connects the fact that that all happened is through these women who were there and saw them all. He's very specific with who they are, who their mother is. They're probably still alive. Mark is saying, you can go talk to them. Go ask them. Go ask their kids. It's all true. And they're walking to the tomb. And they have spices in their hands indicating they're expecting to find a dead body. The the Jews did not engage in the ancient practice of embalming uh, dead bodies, but they did want to anoint it with oil for simply to control the smell. Dead bodies smell. And so oil you put on them, it it helps uh, control the smell. And so the fact is, they were not expecting a resurrection. They were expecting to find a dead body. Because the fact that Jesus would rise from the dead, that is impossible. It's not even on their radar. You know what people don't do? They don't rise from the dead. Regardless of what you believe in this room or what anyone believes outside of this room, we all know everybody dies. And you know what happens when you die? You're dead. Especially days later, period. Stop. And as they travel, they are trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do here? We saw this whole burial happen. That stone is pretty big. How we can get access to the body? And just in that, I have to give them credit because with a literal obstacle in their way, they they still bought the spices and go, we're just going to go figure it out when we get there. And I just respect that determination. Because I'm not a figure it out when I get there kind of person. I don't know about you, but I like knowing things before I set out. I want all my ducks in a row. You know, when the word of God says your word is a lamp unto my feet, you know what I say? That's a very cute, nice verse. You know what? I want a spotlight I don't want a lamp. I want to see where this path goes. I want to see when it twists and when it turns, when it goes up and when it goes down before I start. But I learn again and again, God by his grace reveals to me, it's just not how life works. God gives you a lamp, not a spotlight. And he just asks you to take the next step and then trust that the next step will be lit once you get there. But sure enough, they get there. What would what we read? Boom, stone is laid aside. And they're shocked, and they're probably a little relieved, but they're probably wondering, did somebody beat us to it? Like, okay, we don't need to go find someone, but they're kind of processing this, and they step in, and they see a young man who um, we know from the other accounts is an angel. Luke and John say there were two angels there. Matthew and Mark mention just one, because they're focused on just the one who spoke. And by Mark's account, the angel just gives them three things. Uh, If you're visiting with us, I'm not into really uh, impressive outlines. I have three words, okay? Three words of kind of what he unpacks. First, he assures. The three women saw the man sitting in the tomb in a white robe, and Mark says they were alarmed. So the first thing the angel says before anything else is what? Don't be alarmed. And, and, And I think when I just say the word alarmed, the picture in your mind is probably not the depth of meaning that Mark is trying to portray. Because when I think alarmed, I think I'm at the grocery store and I'm turning into aisle six and I see somebody right there and I'm alarmed. You know, I I was listening to a comedian this year, I don't even know what his name was, posted a video on social media, and he was mocking the fact of what he considered to be the universal reaction of white people when they bump into others. And he goes, the reaction's always the same, it's, oop, 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 sorry. And it's, oop, 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 sorry. And I, here's why it's infuriating to me because it's so true. And anytime after I find myself walking into something, I'm like, oop, oop, I don't even know what that sound is. Like it's illegible. But we all do it, like, oop, oop, sorry. And, and, and so here's what the women did not do they did not walk into the tomb and see the angel go, oop, oop. Sorry about that. The word that Mark is trying to portray is deeply rooted agony, fearful amazement And the reason we know that is because the greek word that is used there in verse 5 is the same word to describe jesus when he was praying in the garden of gethsemane and he was sweating blood if you were here for that sermon you remember that was one of the most agonizing sermons i've ever preached because i think it's the most agonizing text in the bible But this is the theme we have seen all throughout Mark. We don't have time to kind of retrace all the cases, but when people see a miracle, hear his teaching, they come to face with the power of God through Jesus. It's the same sense of fearful amazement every single time. No less than 10 times in Mark alone. It's the kind of amazement, if you go on a hike, you like the outdoors, and you get to the top of a mountain, and you just kind of walk to the edge of the cliff, and you look over. You're not scared, but your knees start to shake, don't they? It's that, it's a, it's that sense of amazement, of just fear, of awe, of majesty before you. That is the sense of alarming that these women experienced, and we just should not allow this to pass us by too easily. That there is a certain level of reverence and amazement that should always be attached to Jesus that if we're honest, all too often just gets washed away. And maybe it has something to do with just how familiar Jesus is. I say the word Jesus, nobody in this room, in this part of the world is, is surprised. I mean, people say Jesus Christ for reasons that are actually negative. Like it's so just um, familiar to us. It doesn't mean anything to us. But when you think about it, one of the reasons why I think in our increasingly secular, this kind of spiritual but not religious age that so many people want to claim, and they kind of want to do away with exclusive claims of faith that Jesus is the Savior. He might be a Savior, but not the Savior. And, and the real, just the, the general consensus of our culture is now we just want to put all beliefs in a blender and just agree that whatever comes out, we're okay with it. Everything's the same. You got your belief, I got my belief. Just choose for yourself. If you think about it, that belief in and of itself is rooted in fear. Because we tell ourselves that out of a false sense of assurance, that if we can discredit the hard line claims of Jesus, of the need to repent, of all these kind of archaic ideas, Jesus is not that scary anymore. He's kind of our buddy. I'll go to him when I need him. He doesn't really care what I do. And that is never the reaction in the word of God when somebody comes upon the power of God. It's not the reaction of the woman, nor is it the reaction of anyone who comes face to faith with Jesus. It is holy amazement. It is reverent awe. It's the kind of alarmed that the angel has to say, do not be alarmed. If you think about something you're afraid of, you got something in your mind, what's something you're afraid of? The only assurance that you need in that moment is that the object of your fear will not threaten you. So you're on top of that mountain. You know when your knees won't stop shaking until you step back. There's a kid, you know, a son who's in the age of every shadow is a monster in his bedroom. You know that phase. The only time that fear stops, and when I tell him it's just your lamp, that the object of that fear won't hurt him. And the only way we will confront divine power and be assured that that power won't hurt us is if we're told, "Do not be alarmed." It's the second most command in the Bible, second most found command in the Bible, do not fear. Nobody comes to faith in Jesus Christ without this initial response of fear when they confront the living God. By God's grace, we don't stay there, but we all start there. And fearful amazement needs assurance to come outside of ourselves. Do not be alarmed Second, he proclaims. First, he assures, then he proclaims. Um, and, And the angel proclaims the good news. He says, You seek Jesus who was crucified, but he has risen. And then he says, Look for the body yourself, right where you guys saw him laid down. He's not there. And this is all the angel needs to proclaim. I love the simplicity of it. He says, Look to Jesus. Don't stare at yourself. Don't find fulfillment within. Don't say, I found my own personal purpose and my own destiny, and I just have to worry about me. He says, no, 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 no. Look to Jesus. He is risen. And the simplicity of that is so important, because if you're in here, by God's grace, if you call yourself a Christian, this is what happened by the grace of God, your eyes were opened to see who Jesus is and what Jesus did on your behalf. And you responded by repenting of your sin and believing in him. That is what salvation is. And as we have walked through Mark for over a year, we have seen week in and week out that he is the most captivating and unpredictable person that has ever walked the planet. So regardless if you think about Christians or the church and if you just think we're all jerks and whatever, just think about Jesus with me for a second. As he is written about in the Gospels, he is smart and majestic while displaying the greatest humility. He is committed to justice for the least of these and for tearing down systems of oppression while showing stunning mercy and grace towards all those he comes across. He is compassionate without being weak. He is bold without being harsh. He is unpretentious without losing any confidence. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. Because you see, it takes all the strength in the world to be humble. It takes all the courage in the world to walk the pathway of suffering, knowing the cost, and doing it anyway for the good of others. And Jesus did it. Look to Jesus. And he never sinned. That's the most unique aspect of them all. Never once. He never had a straight thought. He never gossiped about others. He never lusted after a woman. He never allowed pride to separate him from the Father because pride is at the foundation of every sin we've ever committed. The sin of thinking, my way is better than God's way. And so the angel proclaims, he was crucified. Jesus died for sin just not his own sin. He was crucified for the sin of the world. He was crucified for the sin of the women who were at the tomb, for the apostles who fled earlier, for the sin of those who came before him, for the sin of those who come after him. He died for my sin, for your sin. And you cannot experience the joy of the empty tomb without first experiencing the agony of the cross. When you look to Jesus, you will see the way to victory walks through the road of suffering. And the suffering agony when you see your sin and it creates in you the need for a Savior. Like this is what grace does. We talk about grace and God, grace and saving you and dying for you and rising rising again. Yes and amen. But before you get eyes to Jesus as a Savior, you first... Need to get eyes for yourself as a sinner, and this all becomes visible when you look at Jesus. You look at him, and you simultaneously see the ugliness of sin and the beauty of grace. You see the cross overpowered by the empty tomb, and so um, when, when when I preach a sermon. Um, I always get to a point in my preparation where I'm like, how am I going to apply this to the people? Okay, you get the text, you explain the text, you unpack any theology in there, and then you've got to apply it to the people. And you want to know something? Every application I give in a sermon, I think every application in the Bible has the same starting point. Do you know what that starting point is? It's what this angel just said to the women. Look to Jesus. And then from there, it can manifest itself in any kind of number of ways that we can apply. But, but it starts with look to Jesus. Because the burdens of this world, they all have one thing in common. They bring our eyes down. And they, we look at ourselves, and we just kind of look at things around us and in us, and it creates anxiety and fear and anger or pride. And so the Bible is telling us all the time, from cover to cover, lift your eyes Are you fearful about something right now? Maybe a wayward child. Maybe you gotta wake up tomorrow and you're in a tough spot at work. Are you fearful about being alone for the rest of your life? Look to Jesus. Are you skeptical about someone um, rising from the dead and this whole thing, we sing, we talk, and it all sounds good, but it means nothing to me outside these doors, and this is kind of ridiculous. This guy died 2,000 years ago. How could he change my life? Look to Jesus are you just worn down by the ups and downs of life and to be honest it's probably more downs than ups you would say and then you're just grinding and the disappointments keep coming look to Jesus are you burned out by the failure of so-called Christians in your life who are failing to live out their faith well can you say you've been hurt more by Christians than non-Christians in your walk? And this all seems a little hypocritical. You might be right, but look to Jesus. He died for your sin, and the Father raised him from the dead, which shows us that the debt has been paid in full, because when a debt is paid, a sentence is served. The prisoner goes free. And so Jesus' resurrection shows us that he is who we said he was. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And the resurrection guarantees your resurrection. One more. We've seen the angel give assurance. We've seen him proclaim. And now finally and importantly, he sends. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you, and there you will see him. And then my favorite line, the title of this sermon, probably my favorite line in the Gospel of Mark, just as he told you. And this is the primary evidence of someone who has looked to Jesus, who has been given the grace to see him for who he really is, who has put his faith in him. What The primary evidence of that is that you go and tell You see, saving faith is personal, but it is never private. And you tell not only with words, but with the lives you live. People will watch how you live far before they will listen to what you will say. And so for those who have been here through the whole Gospel of Mark, I'll tell you the biggest comment I've gotten throughout the last 16 months, the biggest takeaway I've heard from people is that it shows us that our faith in Jesus is never private. It always extends out to positively impact the world around you. That faith in Jesus should be a positive impact on our marriages, on our friendships, in in the communities we live in, in our relationships at work, even with those, especially with those who don't treat you well in return. Because the saving grace comes in and it flows through us to impact the world around us, to impact individuals, to impact systems, to impact cultures, to seek the good of others. Jesus, all throughout Mark, seeks the good of others. And his most famous line, he says, the greatest among you. Man, we're in America in 2019. Everyone wants to be great. He says, you want to be great? You must be the greatest servant. Go and tell and proclaim the good news with the life you lead and with the words you say. And then I think the most emotionally significant aspect of this angel's words were how he singled out one person. Go tell the disciples and who? Peter. No one has had an, a, as agonizing of a week as Peter No one has so painfully failed Jesus and gave into his fear and his pride more than Peter. And yet he is the one whom the angel says, go tell him. So if there's anybody here this morning, if you feel like you can just resonate with Peter, You can resonate with the fact that you have given in to the weakness of the flesh, of that feeling that you can probably never be the type of person Jesus saves. Maybe this is true for others, but it can't be true for me. I want you to hear this. Jesus does not condemn you. He forgives you. He doesn't resent you. He loves you. And Jesus does not exclude you. He includes you. And so bring your pain and bring your regrets, and lay them down at Jesus' feet, because he has overcome. The good news of what we do here each and every week hinges on this being true, the resurrection. And it should be declared to all that Jesus is alive, and he is going before you, and all that's happened, happened just as he told you, and he's coming back and God has made good on his promise from the beginning of time to restore and redeem a fallen creation through his son Jesus Christ well the woman they fled in markian fashion it's over they're trembling they're astonished they're afraid they're amazed and they're gone and we do know from the other accounts that they will eventually tell Peter and they will obey and together with the other disciples they will be filled with the spirit and they'll begin the movement of the church which has been growing for the past 2,000 years so all of us have to at least concede to one of two things either this is true and Jesus is the son of God or this is a scam that worked out pretty well But we are here reading God's word in 2019 because these women listened to the exhortation to go and tell. And with that, Mark stares you down and he turns the table on you that Jesus died and Jesus rose again. So what will you choose? Faith or fear? Will you take courage or take cover? Let's pray.